It is so good to be with you all. It is my joy to be here. And yes, I bring you greetings from Western Theological Seminary where I work and also from Fellowship Reformed Church here on the north side of Holland, which is where I usually worship. And as you will have gathered by this point, I am not from around here. Um, so I thought I should probably explain this so you don't spend the sermon time thinking, where is she from? Um, I'm an Aussie. I'm an Australian by birth, but there's also a lot of English mixed up in my accent because my parents are originally English. My parents are here today. Yay. And also, I spent nearly 10 years in the UK before I came here to West Michigan in 2007. So yes, that explains my funny accent. And as we come to God's word this morning, join me now in a prayer for illumination. Living and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, and it's verses 50 through 58, so the last part of that. And for those of you who happen to know Handel's Messiah, I am going to give you an earworm now for the rest of the day. Hear the word of the Lord. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. And this is an absolutely glorious passage. It's ringing with confidence about our final state, our resurrection bodies, the full and final triumph over sin and death and what that means for how we are to live our lives now. But if we are going to grasp what this passage is telling us, we need to take a few steps back and track with what Paul has been saying through this whole extraordinary chapter. I decided I would just read the last part because it would take too long to read the entire of 1 Corinthians 15. But if you have a Bible in front of you, you might like to open it to the start of 1 Corinthians 15, because what I'll do is walk us through some of what Paul has to say earlier in the chapter, because that will help us to grasp more of what he's teaching us in this glorious last part, and it will help us to unpack even more of what it is that we mean when we say those words of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and a life everlasting. This whole chapter is about the resurrection, and we only have such a long chapter about it because it seems like 
the Corinthian Christians didn't believe in it. Or at least they were pretty confused about it and they were going very wrong in some of their thinking. And that turns out to be really helpful for us because it means that Paul has to take the time to explain things to them. Because let's be honest here, the resurrection has never been an easy thing for anyone to grasp and believe in. Check out Acts 17 sometime for what happens when Paul is preaching the gospel to a, a group of Greeks, right? And they're tracking with him until he gets to the point where he speaks about Jesus's resurrection. And then he's lost them. They laugh in his face, basically. I suspect that all of us have all sorts of questions that we might not always feel comfortable about asking when it comes to the resurrection. And thankfully, it looks like the Corinthians asked most of them for us, and we have Paul's response to them. For us to understand our resurrection, we have to start where Paul does, with Jesus's, because Jesus's resurrection is the basis of ours. So the very first thing Paul has to do in this chapter is to remind the Corinthians that it really is true that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Because even though that's been preached to them, some of them are denying there's any such thing as the resurrection. So he tells them, it is of the first importance that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and then he was raised on the third day. And says Paul, there are eyewitnesses who are still alive at this time who can share about that and who can confirm it. So, says Paul, dear Corinthians, the resurrection of Jesus happened. And then he has to remind them of why it matters. Because this is not just some abstract idea to ponder, as if you can pick or choose whether you're going to believe in the resurrection or not. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, says Paul, then you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. Without Jesus' resurrection to declare the victory that he has won over sin and death and hell on the cross, there is no reconciliation with God. There is no salvation. There is no eternal life. And if it's only for this life, that we have hoped in Christ, says Paul here, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection matters that much. Paul knows this is a difficult doctrine, right? And with a difficult doctrine, it can help us to ask why it matters. What difference does it make whether I do or I don't believe this? The how questions of the resurrection are really hard to get our heads around. How could Jesus be raised from the dead on the third day? How can we be raised from the dead to life everlasting? All sorts of how questions bubble up in our heads, most of which are way above our pay grade to try to answer. But the why questions, the what difference does this make questions, oh, we can get those. And Paul makes sure that we realize why we believe in the resurrection, no matter how hard it is. Without the resurrection, Jesus was first, and then ours, based on his, there is no salvation for us. There is no eternal life. It matters that much. It is that serious. So, as Paul spells out for the Corinthians, that Jesus was raised from the dead is crucial but what Jesus' resurrection is like 
is also extremely important. It was a bodily resurrection. And Paul is going to have to insist on that over and over again throughout the chapter. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and we will be too. He has to hammer that home in various ways because guess what? It looks like some of the Corinthians didn't believe that either. And that's not altogether surprising because at the time, the kind of cultural water that the Corinthians were swimming in, it really emphasized that it was your spirit, it was your soul that mattered the most. You sort of had to have a physical body in this life to kind of house your soul, but at best your body was seen as indifferent and at worst as downright evil. Your idea of salvation swimming around at this time was that you would get rid of your body, you would escape from your body at death and be an immortal soul. And I think we should just hit the pause button right there for a moment. Because folks, that can sound awfully familiar. There is a lot of this kind of thing in our culture. And very, very sadly, even sometimes within the church, this way of thinking that denigrates the physical and elevates the spiritual, that tries to tell us it's only really our souls that ultimately matter to God and not our bodies. I mean, how often do we hear language about Jesus saving our souls as if our bodies don't really matter now or eternally? And a lot of Christian folk have some vague ideas about eternal life that are basically disembodied. You know, we'll somehow float off up to heaven and be souls for all eternity. And it doesn't help that quite a number of hymns and songs imply that kind of thing sometimes too. Um, just no. Okay, that kind of thinking is pagan. It's not Christian. On the basis of the scriptures, right, and above all, on the basis of what we know from the scriptures happened to Jesus Christ on the third day, we believe, as our Apostles' Creed says, we believe in the resurrection of the body, not just the immortality of the soul. So how did we end up having all of this sort of basically subscriptural, not fully Christian stuff getting into our hymns and our songs and our thinking, this floaty souls thing, how does that sneak into the church? Well, partly, it's that some of the most influential strands of like Western philosophical thinking have always had a strong strain of what we call dualism. This saying that our soul or our inner essence, that's what's truly important about us and our bodies are yucky, basically, and don't really matter. And that kind of thinking has sometimes infected the church and theology too. But this idea that we'll just somehow be immortal souls for eternity and, and sort of not really uh, highlighting the resurrection of the body, that's also because of what happens when we die. Things are going to get a little bit technical at the moment here. I'm, I'm a theology nerd, okay, so you're going to have to bear with me just for a moment because what I'm about to say will explain a lot. And it really matters if we're going to believe what Jesus and the Bible say we should believe about all of this. So... Scripture does suggest that when we die, we do leave our bodies behind initially, so to speak. The souls of believers who have died are with the Lord. They're rejoicing in his nearer presence and they're held in his love. But that is not the end of the story. It is not yet the fullness of life everlasting as we proclaim in the creed. Those who've died are waiting with us 
before the time when Jesus Christ will come again in glory. Those of you who've been with this whole sermon series, you'll remember that from earlier in the series, right? Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that is when the resurrection is going to happen too. We will receive a glorious body like his glorious body, as Paul tells us in Philippians. And as we heard in our reading, that is when death will finally be done away with and the fullness of everlasting life will follow for all who are saved. So, bit of a recap. To help the Corinthians with their questions about the resurrection, Paul has had to remind them that however difficult it is to get our heads around it, believing that Jesus was raised from the dead is not an optional extra. If Jesus hasn't been raised, we won't be raised. We are still in our sins. There is no salvation. And then Paul reminds them that Jesus has a resurrection body and so will we. And that's the next question that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 15. What will our resurrection bodies be like? The question we all want to ask and answer. What kind of bodies will we have? Well, says Paul, they won't be identical to the bodies we have now. On the one hand, yes, it will still be us. It'll still be our bodies. But on the other hand, they will be different. And Paul gives a really great analogy for this. He gives the analogy of a seed that's planted and what a seed grows into. So a wheat seed is not the same as the wheat stalk that grows from it, but the wheat stalk comes from the seed. And this kind of thing is what our passage is getting at too, only kind of more poetically. Flesh and blood, our ordinary bodies as they are now, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They won't work for the life everlasting. Our bodies need to be made fit for the conditions of eternal life. Our mortal bodies will have to put on immortality. What is perishable will have to become imperishable. We will all be changed. But it will still be us, but we will be changed. And if you remember the stories of Jesus' resurrection appearances, right, this is exactly what they are getting across. It really was Jesus, the same Jesus who died on Friday and who was raised from the dead on Sunday, but he was different too. So you know how this goes. Sometimes the disciples recognized him, sometimes they didn't. And yet he ate fish and he could be held and poked and prodded, but he also walked through walls. The same but different, transformed, glorified. So there's going to be continuity. It truly will be us and our bodies but there'll be discontinuity too. We won't be exactly the same as we are now. Just before the passage that I read, Paul uses the language of a natural body for what we've got now, our current flesh and blood bodies that are good, but they're also weak and perishable and they get damaged and sick and they grow old and they die. And then he uses the language of spiritual bodies Still a body, notice, spiritual bodies for what our resurrection bodies will be like. No longer subject to sin and death, no longer held back by any weakness or infirmity, but immortal, imperishable, glorious. And in and through those bodies, we will eternally glorify and worship God and enjoy the fullness of everlasting life. And speaking of that, what can we say? about what the life everlasting in the new creation will be like? Well, not a whole lot, to be honest. Um, scripture gives us some ideas and images and contours, but not very many details. 
So we know things like it will be magnificent and glorious and there will be no more sin and no more causes of sin and no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament hold out a vision of eternal life when heaven comes to earth, so to speak. The world will be transformed by the presence and the glory of the Lord, which will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And scripture uses the language of feasting and music to try to convey something of the joy and the delight that we'll experience. And we know that we will finally have full and perfect and unshakable union and communion with the triune God. We will see God face to face. We will rest in his perfect presence and his perfect love. And that will fill us with love and joy and wonder and praise. And we know that we will delight in one another and the whole of the glorified new creation. All creatures will be at peace with each other and with us and the whole of creation will join us in rejoicing and praising God. So, even though the scriptures don't fill in too many of the details, my goodness, the contours that scripture offers us for the life everlasting are vibrant and beautiful and joyful and glorious. And how on earth did we come up with so much that sounds so boring about ideas of eternal life? Because let's be honest, Many of us have come to settle for pretty boring ideas of eternal life. You know, back to that idea of a disembodied, floaty existence, for example, or maybe you have pictures of, of eternally sitting on a cloud, strumming on a harp or something, or maybe endless holes in one at golf or whatever. Um, sometimes, honestly, sometimes it seems like the only thing that's really attractive about the idea of eternal life with the Lord is that it's a whole lot better than the alternative option. And that is so not scriptural. Vibrant, glorious, joyful, beautiful. C.S. Lewis got it right when he described the life everlasting as something like further up and further in and more and moreness. And so honestly, the more we think about the glimpse the scripture gives us of the life everlasting, the more I think we will long for it and join in the prayer of the early church. Come, Lord Jesus. But in the meanwhile... We are here and now and not there and then. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting will be glorious, but what, if anything, can they mean for us in our life right now? Well, I can think of two really big implications, and you can probably think of more. First, the resurrection of the body reminds us of how much our bodies matter to God now as well as eternally. They matter so much that God has a glorious future for them, and that should tell us a whole lot about how we should think about and treat our bodies and other people's bodies now. They matter to God. They should matter to us. And aren't there so many people out there who need to hear that message? Your body really matters. It's good in God's sight. It's worthy of honor and care. People who for any number of reasons maybe think their bodies are worthless and so they think of themselves as, as worthless because of how they struggle with aspects of their body and what has happened to their body. The bodily resurrection affirms for us that our bodies are truly valuable to God. He loves them, he delights in them as well as our souls and he has a future for them. A future in which our bodies will be gloriously transformed and restored when the hurts and the harms and
and the weaknesses and those aspects of our bodies that we struggle with will no longer hold us back from fullness of life. So pretty obviously, if that is the future of our bodies, we should seek to care well for our bodies now, but it's even more than that, right? As Christians, we shouldn't just be concerned about people's souls. We should also be caring about whether they can get enough decent food or what their housing conditions are like or what their health care is like and so on. Just as the resurrection of the body drives home to us that the salvation Christ won for us and the eternal life that awaits us are about our bodies as well as our souls. So living the Christian life now in the light of the life to come means caring not just about the well-being of people's souls, but also the well-being of their bodies. And then a second huge implication from our belief in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is one that the final verses of this chapter point us to. Paul has just spent a whole long chapter, like nearly 60 verses, making sure the Corinthians and we absolutely get how important it is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and so will we, and how when the trumpets sound and the dead are raised, death and sin will finally be done away with. And so what's the point of all of this? What does Paul actually close with? What does it mean? Therefore, says Paul, because of all of this, it means that in our lives now, we can stand firm. It means that nothing can shake us. It means in the version that I'm a little bit more familiar, familiar with, we are called to be strong and steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. What we do now matters all of us who are in Christ, we're already beginning to walk in newness of life now, and we can have full confidence about where we are headed in him. No matter what life throws at us, we have the assurance that ultimate victory has been won for us in Christ. And that gives us courage, and it gives us stamina, and it gives us confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. Even in the toughest of times, and even when what we're doing doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit. And especially if you think of yourself as incredibly insignificant, which most of us actually are because we're just ordinary people doing ordinary things and we are not going to change the world. If you wonder whether anyone actually notices or cares what you do day by day or whether it makes any difference at all, then hear these words again. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Keep on doing those little things that you do for Christ, those things that bring just a little bit more of love of God and love of neighbor, those things that are tiny steps towards more healing and reconciliation and wholeness. Those things matter. They are seen by God. They are valued by God. They are tiny anticipations of the time when there will be fullness of joy and peace and healing and restoration and sin will be no more and death will be swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious future you have prepared for us. By the Holy Spirit, enable us to live faithfully now in the light of the life to come, knowing that our labor is not in vain and knowing that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, through whose life and death and resurrection, we look forward to our resurrection and the life everlasting. In his name we pray.
Amén.